Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont and Professor Richard LaDuke explore the early history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the life and teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith. They examine the original historical sources and provide context for events of the past. They approach the history of the Church with faith, expertise, and humor. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we're going to answer a listener's uh, question uh, that they sent in via email. Um, but before we get into the uh, Phoebe Draper mailbag, we are going to just a couple of, of shout outs to a couple of listeners that, uh, that we absolutely love. Um, uh, my son recently graduated from high school and, uh, congratulations my, that we're, we're, we're very excited about it. Uh, I'm glad that whatever bribe you paid <laughs> it was, was substantial. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The Richard LaDuke stadium now that, uh, yeah. sits at Leighton Richard high. is the T Boone Pickens of Leighton <laughs> high school. Yes. So, uh, we went, my wife, uh, signed me up for, um, the the senior party afterwards at uh, a boondocks and i think our shift was from when, not, are, you, when are you getting divorced <laughs> from nine to two two thirty or whatever it was it was very late um and uh so but i ran into a listener and, and friend of the podcast tom there and and he said so many glowing things about uh, Genriff, that uh, they were so nice do you think it was because it was 2 a.m and he also he was loopy had, yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it was he was he was just he was so kind, and I just wanted to just to say thank you to him. And we I, we were talking to another friend of ours. One of the problems with much of the Missouri uh, history is that, um, especially when you get into some of the the violence and and specifically the the Hiram Smith affidavit, the affidavits talking about the violence. Yeah, the content is explicit. Yeah, and uh, Garrett has never swore. And I have never swore on the on podcast. The, well, if we curse on the podcast, then we have to make it explicit. Yeah, and and the affidavit is explicit. Well, because he's quoting what the Missourians are saying as well as what they're doing. Right. And so, it, you know, you can pull punches and say, yeah, things were like pretty bad and stuff. But that doesn't really... Paint the picture. Yeah, paint the picture. Um, so we we received a very kind offer from a longtime Leduke friend, uh, Karen. She offered uh, to record. Well, so this stems from it was a few episodes ago that we we didn't want to read what the newspaper had said, right? Because it used a profanity, right? That I believe was of a a female dog variety. That is that is correct, and. So we edited that. Yes. Um, and Karen suggested that she would be more than willing to cut a bunch of drops for us of every curse word and then expanded that and said even other vulgarities. Yeah, much like Vin Diesel in Guardians of the Galaxy with Groot. She yeah. would just a bunch of different expletives and say them in different ways with surprise, with yeah. anger, whatever yeah. it is. We get, we, her, just... we get her into a recording studio. <laughs> And she just records two or three hours of cursing <laughs> in various ways. Now, in fairness, and, she's from Australia. It's different there. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
And I'm pretty so, sure some of the ones she was suggesting to use are also <laughs> curse words in Australia. <laughs> they are quite, yeah. quite, quite, uh, quite aggressive curse words. But uh, we appreciate Karen's willingness to do it, yeah. and we'll get back. To yeah, it. well, it, we could uh, just do a drop every time, <laughs> and, and we could we could work them in. Like if I'm mad at Richard for something, I could be like. Richard, where is the – and then drop Karen email. Well, it's like that. we've made jokes about morning radio where you have like a flushing toilet sound yeah. and you've got different, you know, different sounds. That still doesn't get us through the explicit uh, Yeah, Apple rating. would still expect us to tell people that Karen's cursing even if it's not us. Well, so this is this is the thing though. Um, we've, we've actually talked about this before we even started the podcast. Um, Garrett was like – he wants to do that, but he wants to curse. He, well, no, he wants to 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 because it it really it's 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 an incredible reaction that people have when they read it, right? Because it's very different than just saying things were bad. Yeah, yeah. Some people did some things, right? So it was it was very it's very aggressive. So we may do that in in a future date, but we would have to label it as explicit and give lots and I mean, lots. I guess and we lots. could edit it and just say. Bleep. But the problem bleep. is, is that any edit then almost makes it almost lighthearted versus. Yeah. Especially but. if I'm just saying the word bleep. <laughs> I mean, maybe we could find someone else. Maybe Karen would say the word Karen, bleep. Karen will do it. All right. Okay. We'll get Karen thank you, Karen. Story. Anyway, thank you, Karen, for that. We appreciate it. All right. On to the, uh, onto the Phoebe Draper mailbag. So we did have a listener that sent in a very kind and personal message to a, fe- listener. a fellow listener, Blaine. And rather than than reading that portion of the message, I just uh, copied the text and, and emailed that text over to to Blaine. But um, how, how did this listener get your attention? I, I actually cut that part out too. But oh. but she she did something. She claimed and, to be your mom. <laughs> yeah, um, that way you would read her. I, I read think, Devo. Yeah, I think we've gotten to the point where people were claiming to be your son. Well, Andrew, that's what she's. She made the joke that Bl- it worked for Blaine. So saying she's that just going to say Andrew. No, what the unfortunate part is, she doesn't know your relationship with your mom, right? So then she doesn't know whether or not that would make you read it or not. <laughs> but it did. It, it made did. me read you it. You know what? It worked. It absolutely yeah. did. Um, and so she starts the the section to us. As for you, two gluttonous gambling fellas, and I will say the gluttonous fair gambling. I'd well, like we're to... glutting ourselves on the labors of the people. Yes, well, it's very fair, both in uh, weight distribution as well as uh, it, filthy as lucre. we as we hoard premium content <laughs> unto ourselves. So uh, the gambling, though, would like to refer you to President Hinckley's April two thousand five conference address on gambling, and we do not. Uh, endorse gambling in any way of any of any type whatsoever. It's just I really, really, really care whether the Celtics beat the Miami Heat by two or by two and a half points. I really, really care we're, about. We're that. headed into what uh, game six tonight? Yes. So whenever this yeah. drops, this is going to drop toward the middle of June. Yeah. So by the, the time finals you, will be over, by the time you hear this, there will have already been a riot in Boston during the celebration of them coming back. Or possibly losing tonight. Either way. Yeah, I think they're... You think they're going to win? Well, I don't know. Well, I mean, Miami has so many injuries. Every player on the Heat is injured. Every player. They started a guy in the last game who hadn't played a single minute (laughs) in the entire playoffs, and he started. At this point, they're calling me. (laughs) That's That's where we're at. They're like, hey... uh, Hey, we saw some tape of your Russet uh, experience in high school. So there was like that one time that you got a rebound, and that looked kind of okay. (laughs) So we're going to need you to be our point guard because you're only 6'3". Uh, anyway, um, so 
I can't express how grateful I am for your testimonies uh, have influenced my own testimony and how they have reshaped how I discuss some important gospel top topics with my own family. I feel that they will be empowered not only with the information about your chur- about our church history, which I sure didn't have, but also with a patience for answers we don't have yet, an understanding of where truth comes from, and an awareness of how much more important personal revelation is than any known or unknown facts. When I was done with my mission, my second wonderful mission president told me, the spirit doesn't change its mind. When I have doubts and worries, I cling to those experiences when the spirit had clearly testified to me. Your podcast has reinforced that our truth while also filling in tons of holes in my understanding of our history. As reinforced truth while filling tons of holes of my understanding of our history. Thank you for the laughs and knowledge and testimonies. Keep it up. And maybe one day my husband and I will actually subscribe. <laughs> maybe. But not yet. But lots of love and gratitude. Yeah, thank you so much for everything. Elizabeth. We'll think about it. I think Elizabeth is like, you know what? They released two free or yeah, two premium I'm episodes. Waiting. I'm just waiting. I, you know what? Just play the waiting game. Eventually they'll come around. I believe that Richard and Garrett are so lazy that <laughs> they will eventually just release all the premium stuff as free stuff. And I you think- know what? Yeah, I you mean, know look, it's a good at strategy. some point when the podcast is going off the air because our corporate sponsors refuse to <laughs> renew, uh, corporates we have we have no sponsors. Um, as is well, evident, I was I was pushing for Jersey mics, and then we got an email of someone taking a huge, you know, yes, and it was pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, that yeah that didn't help. Yeah, yeah, it didn't help. But uh, um, thank you so much for that. I, I I I really think that's an important thing to do. Is that we can easily get caught up in individual things, an aspect of church history, an aspect of doctrine, past or present that we don't currently understand. And if that becomes the only thing we focus on, we will find ourselves, you know, not doubting our doubts before we doubt our faith. We'll find ourselves just doubting. I think it's good to both reflect back on the spiritual experiences you've had where you know you felt the spirit and also you know, as we've mentioned before, reflect on the doctrines that are unique to this church that you are unwilling to give up. If you believe that there is a pre-existent life, well, like the disciples said to Jesus, you know, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. I mean, if you believe that everyone on earth has the equal opportunity to be saved, where are you going to go? So, we all have questions that we can't answer. And I think your email really points that out really well. At the same time, having some things that we can't answer doesn't overwhelm the incredible answers that we have that no one else has. That's, I couldn't agree more. Um, in uh, another email we've received here, I want the, the subject is thanks. I want to give a sincere thank you as you help me gain a better understanding of Joseph, in particular the portion of his human trials. Sadly, I can answer yes to Dr. Dirk Mott's question if anyone had their father-in-law threaten to evict his own daughter. Long story short, but my father-in-law, on the night of leaving our rented house to go move into our new home we were purchasing with his help, technically left us homeless, uh, his daughter his two granddaughters and myself, however, in the end, the Lord blessed us and we were able to still purchase our new wow, home. Wow, boy. So you, you said that 
You asked well, that rhetorically. I said, I mean, well, I was trying to say, I mean, think about how horrible it is for Joseph. I think this might have been on the premium where we were talking about harmony, right? Um, and and th that was the situation Joseph was in. Well, Darren apparently was also <laughs> in this situation. Even after 30 years later, I still have those pains in my heart in, in what he did to us. But now I shouldn't because it was just one of those – it was just one earthly trial. As you two point out so clearly, Joseph went through so much while trying to do the Lord's work in translation of the Book of Mormon, and he did this for us. So we can have the truth, and I'll be ever thankful for his work so I can have uh, the truth. Millions shall know Brother Joseph again. Thank you. Uh, Darren, P.S., I'm now going to listen to the Best of Bread album on my turntable. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me I still had that. Have a great day. On a turntable. Yes, so, yes. It's very so good. he has it in vinyl. He does. Do you think it's an eight or do you think he has a 16? Right? <laughs> I, I'm hoping in my mind it's an eight, but okay. it might be. It might be. We don't, we don't really So my know. mom's favorite group is bread. And why wouldn't it be with hits like Everything I Own, If, Baby, I'm a Want You, yeah, you know, Guitar uh, Man. Yeah, baby, that is. That's uh, classic. Yeah. And, then, and then, of course, you have David Gates' uh, solo work, Goodbye Girl. Um, just, just classics. Yeah. So, um, I feel like we're losing you. listeners by the second. <laughs> well, we're, but we've got Darren hanging on our every world. Well, right. We're, because he's right now got bread playing in the background. <laughs> Baby, while I want yeah. you. Yeah. Um, our next uh, email comes to us from John and will be the subject of this particular uh, podcast episode. I like how ambiguous we are with John. There's like 7,500 Johns. John L. Yeah. Yeah. John L. <laughs> Uh, so much, so much better. Uh, Seymour Brunson Grave. That's the subject line. Hey, Garrett. <laughs> hey, hey, John. Hey, John. Hey, right back at you, John. I just need to know if Seymour Brunson is really buried where the, the newer headstone is or if he is buried in the old Nauvoo Cemetery. I, along with a few other Seminary Institute guys, are leading tours this summer, and I'm fine telling everyone the week of my tour that Seymour is... <laughs> is, is you already know what he's going to say, so you're... It sounds like he's going to just lie. <laughs> it sounds like he's just going to tell Wait, does that grave say Seymour on it? That's where yeah. he's at. Is he really buried here? Do you think people put headstones places where people are buried? That's not a lie. It's yeah, just return. Kind of a, just kind of a question. question. Yeah, you don't, even, you, don't even, you don't answer the question. Yeah. You just, what does the headstone say? <laughs> Says Seymour Brunson. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, I'm fine telling everyone the week of my tour that Seymour is buried <laughs> at the place of the new headstone, but the other guys care about accuracy <laughs> and stuff. Uh, love the podcast and so, so many of my students, which makes it uh, – and and. And so, so many of my students, which makes it hard to make them think I know lots of stuff when they say in the middle of class, yeah, I heard that on the Standard of Truth podcast. I, First of all, John, John L., you're lying. There's yeah, no way. I desperately want to believe that's true, John. Well, we've already Thank established you. that John's a liar. Yeah, John's willing to lie about anything. <laughs> He's willing to lie about where people are buried, what his seminary kids think. So there's, if, if one, so you know, you know what demo we don't play well with? Anyone. <laughs> all. All. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all I, of the above. Yeah, that's right. But that is that is very funny. Uh, and also he says, Richard, my father-in-law was a finance professor at BYU and could probably rival your love of rice tariffs with his work on daylight savings time and its effect on electric companies. John, I would be fascinated if you could uh, 
send your dad's dissertation <laughs> yeah to well it? at least any journal articles on uh daylight savings time impact on electric companies that maybe is, you could work that into a footnote of your dissertation <laughs> that, that is not going well by the way okay well i am i am well behind we just we keep wanting a, to call him almost dr leduc oh it's he, so far the, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost is a capital a so i've been working with my dissertation chair and I, no one's asking and no one cares uh we'll get to seymour brunson in a minute i've been working with my dissertation chair for some time as submitting multiple, multiple, multiple drafts, and he keeps rejecting them, and with so many yeah. things that need to essentially, be done. Richard trying to submit his dissertation proposal is similar to him at a steak dance when he was seventeen. <laughs> so many it's rejections, just, just, what rejection about after no. rejection after rejection. What about? Come on, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, we finally submitted it to, to the committee. All right. And so oh my gosh, the responses! It's been fantastic. Yeah. If any of you haven't been to graduate school, um. Punch yourself in the face, <laughs> and then that's what all of your papers are when you first get them back. Yeah, yeah. that's very good. Yeah, I like the idea. And then, yeah, and then it's like I like how you're a mammal. <laughs> Everything you wrote in this paper is garbage. It's the scene from Billy Madison. It really is. Yeah, it's, uh, every person in this room is now dumber for having read this. I award yeah. you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Speaking of which, Seymour, Seymour Brunson. Brunson. Well, so. Uh, you might even be wondering <laughs> who, what, who what, in the world is what, Seymour what Brunson. I, when I said to Richard, hey, I'd kind of like to answer <laughs> oh. that Seymour Brunson one, he thought I was kidding. Well, so yeah. And so, he looked at me and blinked <laughs> as if he was waiting for the punchline. He said, hey, I want to do this thing on Seymour Brunson. I'm like, I mean, okay. I mean, I mean, he was like, did Seymour Brunson practice polygamy? <laughs> I mean, what, what's our angle here? What, why are we talking about him? Um, so first, let's set the background for who Seymour Brunson is and why he – I mean, look, I can't chase down every single Latter-day Saints burial place, <laughs> nor am I an expert on that, honestly. I mean, there, there are people who, you know, spend their days. They, they, they never weary of, of searching out graves of people. And, and I'm, you know, generally, I, I'm not that person. So um, – but why do we care? Well – because Seymour Brunson dies as a young young man um, in Nauvoo, and he was a very well-respected man. He uh, was serving on the high council. He was, uh, you know, lieutenant colonel in the Nauvoo uh, Legion. And, and, you know, there are multiple times that Joseph writes him letters, and he writes letters back. We have one account of his funeral that – there, the line, the procession line for his funeral was a mile long. I'm pretty sure when I die, Angie's not even going. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the procession line's like two people, and one of them was there because they heard there was food, disappointed as they were because there wasn't. I mean, so Brunson has, he's so beloved that there's a mile long, you know, procession for his funeral. Now, the question is, where was his procession to? Because where was he actually buried? Well, before we get into that, I think we need to, we need to talk about why he matters. He matters. Not only was a good, faithful Latter-day Saint and his children, good, faithful Latter-day Saint. Why, why, why does he matter? Because it's at his funeral that Joseph Smith will first introduce one of the greatest if you happen to be a Latter-day Saint, or most blasphemous if you happen to be literally anyone else, 
doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's at Seymour Brunson's funeral sermon that Joseph Smith teaches the saints the doctrine of baptism for the dead. Now, in a great tragedy of history, which is basically all of history, uh, but in another great tragedy of history, we don't actually have, we don't actually have the, the, the record of what Joseph said. There were no contemporary accounts made of Joseph's sermon that day, which is crazy, right? You got a, you got a mile of people there and you know, no one's got a pen, but I mean, it, 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 it is crazy and you wish and, and hope that someday you'll, you, you know, maybe that will turn up. It'd be great if at some point, um, there was a, an account of this, uh, funeral that, that, that came up, but, um, there, there isn't. Now we do have a couple of reminiscent accounts where people will later say, this is what happened. Um, one of those is from Simon Baker. Um, this is what he says happened. I was present at a discourse that the prophet Joseph delivered on baptism for the dead, 15 August, 1840. He read the greater part of the 15th chapter of Corinthians and remarked that the gospel of Jesus Christ brought glad tidings of great joy, and then remarked that he saw a widow in that congregation that had a son who had died without being baptized. And this widow, in reading the sayings of Jesus, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven, and that not one jot nor tittle of the Savior's word should pass away, but all should be fulfilled. He then said that this widow should have glad tidings in this thing. He said that the apostle was talking to a people who understood baptism for the dead, for it was practiced among them. He went on to say that people could now act for their friends who had departed this life and that the plan of salvation was calculated to save all who were willing to obey the requirements of the law of God. He went on and made a very beautiful discourse. So even then you don't get the entirety of the discourse, but you do get a summation. So we also have two other, again, reminiscent accounts. And again, they don't try to capture all of the sermon, just what the topic of the sermon is. Uh, one is from Jane Nyman. And that record says, Joseph preached Seymour Brunson's funeral sermon and then first introduced the subject of baptism of the dead and said to the people, I have laid the subject of baptism for the dead before you. You may receive or reject it as you choose. She then went and was baptized for her son, Cyrus Livingston Nyman, by Harvey Olmsted. Joseph, on hearing of it at table in the evening, asked what he said on telling what the ceremony was. It proved the father Olmsted had it right. Vienna Jakes witnessed the same by riding into the river on horseback to get close to, so as to hear what the ceremony would be. So Vienna Jakes is essentially the witness to this first baptism. And as you can, uh, you can discern from that, I mean, you know, some people are so overjoyed when they hear the doctrine that, uh, you know, Jane Nyman immediately went and was baptized for her deceased son who, who had died without, without baptism. This is a topic that is near and dear to Joseph's heart. If you recall, 
at least according to Smith family members, at Alvin Smith's funeral oration, the Presbyterian preacher of the church that Lucy Mack Smith and her daughter belonged to opined to the gathered mourners that Alvin was burning in hell. Why? Well, because he had never been baptized. Now, that can sometimes be confusing, especially when you when you think about the fact that for Protestants, you do not have to be baptized. Baptism is not essential. So why are they saying that Alvin is in hell if he wasn't baptized? Well, works don't save you, but they are a manifestation of your faith. So would an adult man living in a Christian country who has a true faith of Jesus not ever request baptism? And so the, the, the thinking would be, well, clearly you don't really have a true faith because Jesus told people to get baptized. Anyone who has a true faith in Jesus would have been baptized. The baptized, baptism doesn't save them at all, but the baptism is a demonstration that they must have had faith, right? Because you're obviously not going to get baptized. You don't have faith, right? Conversely, it's a pretty tough argument to make when you're an adult that you're just desperately believing in Jesus, but not following the most simple thing he told you to do, right? So, so that was kind of how that was thought. Now, remember, I don't have to tell our listeners this, but to all of you non-Latter-day Saints listening, Latter-day Saints vary greatly on the doctrine of baptism from all of their Protestant uh, friends and neighbors. We, we don't just think it's a manifestation of what we believe. We certainly believe it is a manifestation of what we believe, but we believe the ordinance is actually essential. And that created a contradiction. The contradiction that was created was that Joseph is being taught by God that all those who would have accepted the gospel had they been permitted to tarry and hear it and receive it, that all of them would be saved in the celestial kingdom of God. But Joseph is also being taught by God, Doctrine and Covenants section 76, that in the only way you can go to the celestial kingdom is if you're baptized into the church of the firstborn. So we have two revelations that are expressly contradictory of one another. You absolutely have to be baptized and then in 1836, with Alvin, when jo Joseph receives his vision uh, in the Kirtland Temple, he sees Alvin in the celestial kingdom, and his response is, I marveled that he was in that kingdom. Why? Because he hadn't been baptized. DNC 76 says you can only go to the celestial kingdom if you're baptized. He wasn't baptized. The Book of Mormon says you got to be baptized. Everything's saying you got to be baptized. So how did Alvin go to the celestial kingdom? The interesting part about that is that God explains what happened to Joseph, that all those who would have believed had they been permitted to tarry can also be heirs of the kingdom, but he doesn't explain away the contradiction. That's in 1836. So in 1836, as a believing member, you had to believe something that was absolutely contradictory. You could only go to the celestial kingdom if you were baptized by proper authority, except when you didn't, which was most of the time. 
I mean, think of how awkward a situation that would put you in if someone challenged you on that. Oh, you, you Mormons think that only Mormons can go to the celestial kingdom. Uh, well, actually, we, we think that other people can go too. Well, you, you, I thought you said you had to get baptized. You go, well, you, you do. Well, if you're saying other people can go, then, then I guess you don't have to get baptized. Well, no, you, you do have to, but, and then you probably like, oh, I'm late for my train, even though there's no trains and, and you, and you take off. Um, so for a, a time period, the explanation of how that wasn't a contradiction didn't exist. I always think that's a very, that's a very important thing to consider when we're talking about church history and doctrine. No doubt there are things to us today that appear to be contradictory doctrines or unresolved issues about how something is going to work in this life or in the next. And we're missing the continuing revelation that will eventually make sense of all of it. That's why we have to be patient. We have to be patient because if the moment there are contradictory things that you can't resolve, you immediately throw all of the truths away, well, then you're no longer able to receive that continuing revelation from a prophet when it is revealed. We, we have to accept what the Lord teaches us from prophets in all patience and faith waiting, waiting on the Lord to tell us the answers to our questions. And sometimes those answers come not until the next life. Sometimes those answers don't come for, for however long. I mean, Joseph Smith wanted to know when the second coming was more than just about anything. He asks all the time. He, he gets to the point where he's asked so many times that the Lord eventually says, look, you're not going to know. And let me just say, you know, if you were to live till you're 82, then you still wouldn't see it. So don't trouble me anymore about this matter, right? That told Joseph that it wasn't about to happen, but it, it didn't tell him when it was going to happen. And that's what he wanted to know. If the prophet Joseph Smith, the, the leader of the restoration in this dispensation of the fullness of times, the great prophet Joseph, the seer, if he can't get an answer to his desperate question about God, then I think we all need to just be a little bit patient. Joseph didn't when the Lord told him, I'm not going to tell you. Joseph didn't say, well, I guess I don't even believe anymore then. Fun, see how you like it. Um, he just moved on. And so early Latter-day Saints had this similar contradiction where baptism was essential, except it wasn't essential. And then Joseph is going to reveal the doctrine of baptism for the dead. And it's at Seymour Brunson's funeral, which is the reason why people care where Seymour Brunson is. Joseph writes a letter to the uh, Quorum of the Twelve, and many of them are in England at the time. Um, he writes a letter explaining this to them. I presume the doctrine of baptism for the dead has arrowed this ere this reached your ears and may have raised some inquiries in your mind respecting the same. Uh, you know, that's to put it mildly. It is a fundamental tenet of Christianity, all forms of Christianity, that you have to accept Jesus in this life. There is no acceptance after this life. That you have to accept Jesus in this life. Um, 
you know, it might have raised some inquiries to hear that people can be baptized for the dead. Yeah, but talk about the understatement of the year, Joseph. I cannot, in this letter, give you, give you all the information you may desire on the subject, but aside from my knowledge independent of the Bible, so is Revelation, I would say that this was certainly practiced by the ancient churches. And St. Paul endeavors to prove the doctrine of resurrection from the same, and says, else what shall they do that are baptized for the dead, etc., etc., I first mentioned this doctrine in public while preaching the funeral sermon of Brother Seymour Brunson, and have since then given general instructions to the church on the subject. The saints have the privilege of being baptized for those of their relatives who are dead, who they feel to believe would have embraced the gospel if they had been privileged with hearing it, and who have received the gospel in the Spirit through the instrumentality of those who may have been commissioned to preach to them while in prison. Without enlarging on the subject, you will undoubtedly see its consistency and its reasonableness and presents the gospel of Jesus Christ in probably a more enlarged scale than some have received it. Now, again, talk about an understatement. And in probably a more enlarged scale than some have received it, we are going from literally only Christians can be saved to literally everyone can be saved, right? With the doctrine of baptism for the dead. Um, he goes on, but as the performance of this rite is more particularly confined to this place, so he doesn't want them performing baptisms for the dead anywhere but Nauvoo, it will not be necessary to enter into any particulars. At the same time, I always feel glad to give all the information in my power, but my space will not allow me to do it. So imagine you're an apostle who receives this. Well, you didn't really get a whole lot of information on what it was, other than you can be baptized for your deceased relatives. Now, this doctrine is one that is really important to Joseph, and he is going to come back to it again and again and again and again. Um, for instance, um, in a sermon, uh, 1843, June 11th, 1843, he's going to say, the doctrine of baptism for the dead is clearly shown in the New Testament. And if the doctrine is not good, then throw away the New Testament. But if it is the word of God, then let the doctrine be acknowledged. And it was one reason why Jesus said, how oft would I have gathered you together that you might attend to the ordinance of the baptism for the dead, as well as the other ordinances, the priesthood, revelations, etc. This was the case on the day of Pentecost. These blessings were poured out upon all the disciples on that occasion. Here, Joseph is, is saying that this is what was going on in the past. Now, here's what's really interesting. The Bible clearly teaches baptism for the dead. In fact, it's the point that Paul uses to convince the Corinthians that physical resurrection is a real thing. If you read Paul's letters, in each letter, the group that he's dealing with suffers from a different type of what he sees as a heresy. For instance, if you read the epistle to the Romans— the Epistle of the Romans focuses very heavily on the fact that you do not need to keep the Jewish law in order to be saved. 
This matters because there were Judaizing elements inside of Christianity, you know, Christian Jews, you know, Jews who'd converted, who accepted Jesus as the Messiah, who were teaching that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but in order to be saved, you have to first become Jewish, just like converts to Judaism always had to be. If you were an Edomite and you wanted to become a worshiper of Jehovah, well, then you needed to go through a proselyte process whereby you became a, a member of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, this was an easier said than done thing for women than for men, because for a male convert to Judaism, Richard, what was the, uh, what is it you needed to do as a male convert to Judaism? Well, um, you know, you need to accept the laws. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, follow the, the Torah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, look forward to uh, uh, Messiah. Yeah, yeah. Um, cut missing. off uh, part of your uh, maleness. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah circumcision seems to be kind of the sticking point for some people, actually. Um, and uh, and so, you, as you might imagine, this is a pretty difficult uh, uh, requirement. There were also a lot of other things too, right? So you had these Gentiles who had not been living the law of Moses at all, right? So they hadn't been offering meat offerings and drink offerings. They hadn't been obeying the Sabbath the same way. And these Jewish Christians were teaching them, oh, no, no, no. In order to be saved, you have to keep the law of Moses, including being circumcised, as well as get baptized into the Christian church. You have to do both things. And so Paul's epistle to the Romans heavily, heavily focuses on uh, the fact that you are saved through the grace of Christ. There's a reason why Romans is the favorite of every evangelical Christian today, right? Because it highlights that if you believe in Jesus with your heart and confess with your mouth that he is the Savior, then you are going to be saved. That Faith alone is how salvation comes. Now, of course, the context is Paul is trying to convince a group of essentially Jewish Christians or those influenced by this that they do not have to obey the law of Moses anymore, meaning the, the various offerings and things that had to be done as well as the, the various rites. And, and so he's highlighting that the salvation comes by grace. Well, the Corinthian church has a very different problem. The Corinthian church uh, there in, in Greece, in Corinth, is apparently plagued by a rejection of the idea that the resurrection is a bodily thing. In fact, the Corinthians seem to see the fact that resurrection could be a bodily thing as completely ludicrous. Now, Greek philosophers... Uh, they they believed that the body was generally an evil thing, that the body is what brought about sadness and 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 and, and evil. You can see why Greek converts to Christianity would be completely stymied by the idea that they're going to get their body back. Why in the world would I get my body back? I don't want my body back. The whole point is to escape this wretched, foul body. 
apparently the Corinthian saints were seeing resurrection as being a spiritual thing, that once you've accepted Jesus, you're raised to this higher plane, and that it's not a bodily resurrection. Now, they might even be being influenced by some docetic theology, and, and we've talked about this before, that this idea that God doesn't actually, or that Jesus didn't actually have a body, that Jesus just appeared to have a body, because how how in the world can a God suffer and die? Um, and the, the, the theology of that is that God was just totally a spirit. Jesus manifested as if he had a body, but of course didn't have a body. And then you don't have to worry about, you know, how is it that God can die? How big do you have to make a spear to kill an immortal being, right? So the Corinthians wanted to view resurrection as figurative. The, the body isn't really resurrected, but your soul is essentially raised up to God when you've accepted Christ. Paul is going to inveigh against this idea. And, and it actually is a kind of problematic point for Christians today. And you're thinking, no, I, I don't think it is. It actually is. And we'll talk about that in a second. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, is going to say, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which ye have also received, and wherein ye stand. So first of all, Paul's reiterating that what he's about to say, he already said I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. I already told you this, that this is signs of the apostasy, right? Paul was just there, had just said, hey guys, there's a resurrection. Jesus was resurrected. Paul leaves and they're like, I don't know if it's like really a resurrection. I mean, I know Paul said so, but you know, Paul, he's kind of, you know, he's a, from Tarsus. What are you going to do? Right? <laughs> Verse two. By which ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Here Paul is saying that it's more than just belief, right? They have to believe the right thing. You are saved if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you. That, that's also a troubling verse, honestly, for some evangelical Christians. Because Paul seems to be placing a caveat on whether or not someone is saved. Don't get me. Don't misunderstand. These Corinthians have absolutely accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The question is about whether the resurrection is physical or not. That, that's an argument over doctrine. And yet Paul says, you're saved if you keep in memory of that. Well, that that's, that's highly problematic for other reasons when people claim that once they're saved, they're always saved. But I digress. As often, in fact, we thought of calling the podcast, but I digress, <laughs> or Tangent Corner, which is what Richard calls part of our, uh, our newsletter now. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve, after that he was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all of the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not me to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
and his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? I mean, Paul's, look, Paul is a master orator, okay? I mean, he's brilliant. I mean, it's almost as if he's an apostle. He, he, he starts off the conversation by saying, the testimony that Jesus is our Savior is based upon the fact that he was resurrected. These are the people who saw him. These are the people who were there, and he lists them all off. And so he asked the question, some of you are saying that there's no resurrection. Our entire religion is based upon the fact that there's a resurrection. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain and your faith is also in vain. Again, Paul is not saying that they don't believe in Jesus. They do believe in Jesus, but they're not believing the right thing about Jesus. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that raised up Christ, whom he raised, whom he raised not up, if it so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, then your faith is in vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Paul connects it. If Jesus is not resurrected, then you don't have forgiveness of your sins. Very interesting how he connects those two. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Again, the people who have fallen asleep in Christ. That's not a, that's not a commentary about people who don't believe. Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection, the believers that have died believing in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. I, I love that because... The, the core aspect of Christian theology is believing that there's a better world after this world, that somehow things will be made up to us in the next life. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. So he explains the resurrection is going to be at his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Else what shall they do that are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? 
I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Now, these verses in Corinthians are highly problematic, and they've been highly problematic for 2,000 years. You have Christian theologians of all stripes, of all denominations, Catholic, Protestant, everywhere, desperately trying to figure out what it is that these things mean. The desperation to explain away these verses became much greater with the Latter-day Saint establishment of their theology, that baptism for the dead was a literal thing that you could do to baptize those that had passed away. It's a very interesting set of verbal gymnastics that are employed by other Christians who want to explain this way. I'll tell you, from the scholar's perspective, at best, what you can get from a New Testament scholar is, we don't really know what he's talking about there. At, and, and many will say, Paul is clearly referencing a practice that is going on. We don't understand it, but clearly he's referencing it. And scholars read this the way that it was intended. Paul is using the fact that baptisms for the dead are being performed to demonstrate that resurrection is literal. Why? Because if resurrection is just figurative, then you don't need to baptize anyone for the dead because they're never going to arise their belief already makes them saved. They, there's no physical body surrounding it at all. So, Richard, you got to... Yeah, so so there, there's a lot of different interpretations. One one that uh, we have pulled here is from BibleRef.com, uh, Bible reference, I'm assuming. Uh, having concluded... I assume it was a guy with a referee yeah, jersey it's, it's, and a whistle. Someone blowing like, a whistle. Tweet, you're a Mormon, Heresy. out of the pool. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah foul. <laughs> Having concluded an aside about the order and purpose of the end of times, Paul now returns to making his initial point. The case he is proving is that Christians will be physically resurrected in the end times, just as Christ was resurrected physically after the crucifixion, which is to, to the point. This verse has been interpreted in varying ways by different scholars. The best reading seems to be that Paul is describing the practice of people who do not agree with regular Christian teaching. In that interpretation, his point is to show a disconnect in their thinking. Why do some people get baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead will never be resurrected? Apparently, these people believed both that the dead would only ever remain in spirit form and that being baptized on their behalf would help them somehow. Somehow, yeah, we agree with that fully. Uh, crucial to interpreting this verse is that Paul is posing this group as an other. Those who don't follow his teaching, reasoning, or instruction. He uses the Greek term literally meaning those who baptize for the dead rather than his usual terms of us or we. Nothing in any of Paul's writings or elsewhere in the Bible suggests there is value in being baptized on behalf of another person, living or dead. The New Testament is clear that individuals are responsible to God for their own sin and their own personal faith in Christ for the forgiveness of that sin. Right. And you actually get, so Bible Ref is clearly a a Protestant uh, powered website. Um, And uh, when someone says it's clear in the Bible that... Well, it's obviously not that clear given the fact that the Catholic Church exists, right? I mean, (laughs) like, I know that they're making their point the same way that I'm making my point. 
But it is not an accurate statement to say that scholars think that Paul was talking about someone who was an other, right? Now, Christian apologists who are trying to make that verse make sense, they say something like that. Now, that's not what the text says. The text doesn't say, you know what? I'm desperately trying to prove to you that the resurrection's a real thing. And so one of the evidences I'm going to use is that there's a heresy apostate group that's using baptism for the dead, that you shouldn't be like them, but I'm using their example to show that resurrection really exists. That you don't know that I'm not referencing or speaking about it anyway, but you know, because you know we're here in Corinth and it, it's happening all exactly, over the place. Exactly. And that is a relatively recent and relatively nuanced response to this because people ask questions about Latter-day Saint baptism for the dead. When you go to uh, Christianity.com, uh, which is also a, a Protestant site, um, the question is, is there baptism for the dead? Um, you know, why did Paul say, you know, give his quote? This is a difficult concept to understand, and it is not biblical, and many biblical commentators are unsure of the exact meaning of the ba of baptism for the dead. So at least Christianity.com is being a little bit more forthright, okay? Non-religious scholars, so scholars of New Testament writings, like, like Bart Ehrman, who was a pastor but now is an agnostic or a non-believer, right? He will say... Um, the text seems to say that they believe people are being baptized for the dead, that that's some practice that's going on, right? Um, so it's only those who are trying to explain away what the literal passage says. That's much more problematic for Protestants than it is for, for Latter-day Saints. For Latter-day Saints, look, if there's something written in the Bible that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense or contradicts what a prophet says, we just say, eh, yeah. as far as it's translated correctly, <laughs> we're pretty sure it wasn't, so... <laughs> Next, you know, we just move on. But for especially evangelical Christians who maintain that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, you don't get to explain away Paul's verse by saying, I'm sure that that was just mistranslated and it actually meant something else because now the Bible stopped being the inerrant word of God and it has a very glaring error, but don't worry, it's only that one. So uh, Christianity.com uh, is going to also go on to say that the overall consensus of baptism for the dead is that it is believed that a living person can be baptized in place of a loved one who has passed away in order of, for the deceased to obtain salvation. By the living person making a statement of the profession of faith for the deceased individual, it is supposed to entail that the deceased individual has now been baptized and is ultimately saved. The origin of this concept seems to have started with pagan practices in ancient Greece. That, now, now we're starting to stretch a little bit. Um, sadly, this concept is still being taught among cults today, such as the Church of Jesus Christ hey, of Latter-day Saints. Hey, we got mentioned. That's nice. There is no avoiding the fact that Paul mentions the concept of baptism for the dead in his famous discussion of the resurrection. Now, where do we get to our spin room? Paul is not affirming this erroneous belief, but rather Paul is pointing out this belief in conjunction with the overall main topic, the resurrection of, the, uh, of Christ. Now, again, I, I actually don't think non-religious scholars of the text would make that argument. I mean, 
uh, Paul is clearly using this as evidence that the that physical resurrection exists. Both the argument Richard read and the argument from Christianity.com is in trying to prove his point, Paul brought up a false doctrine that was being practiced in Corinth to prove that the true doctrine of resurrection of the dead was a real doctrine, and he proved it by saying, hey, you know that false doctrine that you guys believe and practice, even that shows there's a resurrection of the dead. I mean, it is, it is, you know, it's the type of verbal gymnastics that would land you a 10 on the balance beam. I mean, you're, you're, you're claiming that Paul is deliberately using a false doctrine, proving the false doctrine in order to true, prove the true doctrine. Well, why didn't Paul just like, I don't know, talk about true doctrine then, right? I mean, it seems pretty weird. I don't ever try to convince people that God doesn't care whether or not you commit adultery. That's why you should read the Book of Mormon, right? I, I don't try to convince people with a false doctrine that the of a true doctrine. That, that it actually doesn't even make any sense. And given Paul's personality in his other letters, show me other places where Paul teaches a false doctrine in order to prove a true doctrine. In fact, Paul's pretty hung up on doctrine being accurate. He, he kind of cares what people believe. Remember, he started 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, you have to believe the right things. And now that I've convinced you that you have to believe the right things, I'm going to use a false doctrine to prove a true doctrine to you. But you can see the reason why Christians uh, resort to that. It's in the scriptures. And many, many Christians believe the scriptures to be inerrant. So now what do we do with it? Well, it must not mean what it actually says. And that's the argument that you get. In fact, as Christianity.com and Bible Ref and others go on, one of their primary arguments is this can't be true because the only way you're saved is through faith and baptism isn't essential. And so if this was true, it would mean that baptism is essential. To which a Latter-day Saint is like, huh, imagine that. So you're saying if this were true, it would mean baptism is actually required. Wow, that's a... It's a, a crazy thought that Christians believed for 1,500 years before the Protestant Reformation. So, I mean, it's, it's actually not as crazy as they, they would have it be. Um, let's go back, though, as our time wanes to the original question. I made you wait the whole time, John. John, you had to, you had to dig deep for this. It's probably not going to help you for me to say. Yeah, we don't know. I don't know. That's great. But let me put it this way. Okay, I believe that the new... So he's talking about where the headstones are. Because uh, in Nauvoo, there is the old uh, Pioneer Cemetery or the, or the old burial ground is what it's called. And it's outside of town. And it's, you know, you got to climb up into a tick-infested wood, you know, to, to go see it. And that's where you'll see the monument to Edward Partridge. And there's still some of the original headstones that are there, although most of them have been destroyed. And there's also another cemetery, the Nauvoo City Cemetery, which 
I, I don't know when. And again, I, I'd need, you know, someone from Seymour Brunson's family to contact us and tell us. I'm sure you're listening. Literally everyone is, right? The entire state of Louisiana. Um, so uh, there's a new headstone that's been placed, relatively new, nice, and it, you know, has the whole quotes of everything in it, that is there in the Nauvoo City Cemetery. And so the question he's asking is, well, is he really buried in the old Nauvoo burial ground or is he buried actually where this new headstone is there's actually a third option and that's where that's why i become a dream crusher right the even though we call it the old nauvoo burying ground we, we call it the old pioneer cemetery that cemetery actually isn't in operation until 1842 for those of you doing math, you'll know that the Latter-day Saints are in commerce and in Nauvoo by 1839. So what is going on for the first three years that people are dying? They're actually being buried at the existing commerce cemetery burial ground that's actually right downtown in Nauvoo itself. I mean, for those of you who've gone to the old Pioneer Burying Ground, it's, it's kind of outside of town. I mean, outside of town today, when only a thousand people live in Nauvoo, I mean, if there were still 20,000 people living around it, probably it would be, you know, surrounded. It's by, downtown. Yeah. It's downtown. Yeah. It's, you know, it's uptown, uptown <laughs> cemetery. Um, well, that cemetery, that original cemetery, the one that's in use from 39 to 42, it was right across Durfee Street. Now, if you're wondering which street is Durfee Street, for those of you sprinting to your Nauvoo map, that is the road that if you were to go into today, the road that you go in on into town that curves up and you go up to the temple on. For those of you who've been to Nauvoo, you know what I'm talking about. That You drive by and on the left is all of the Community of Christ properties, like the Mansion House, the, the Community of Christ Visitor Center. Um... And on the right is the Nauvoo State Park. You know, there's like, and then there's like, hey, you can camp here, things like that, right? And as you follow that road, it, cur it takes a big right turn and it goes up past the temple. That street, Durfee Street, had a cemetery that actually straddled the street there. It was, it, some of it was actually in the Nauvoo State Park, what is today the Nauvoo uh, State Park, and some of it going back towards uh, Hotchkiss Street in in uh, um, Nauvoo today. So it's actually where many members of the church were buried who died during that time period, among them, Edward Partridge. Now, they they outline that they want a new cemetery. In, in 1841, they talk about it and an ordinance is passed to create a 10-acre cemetery outside of town, a couple of miles outside of town, and that cemetery opens in early 1842. So here's what happens. Some, and, and frankly, I, I spent a little bit of time on this, but again, we probably have lots of people who think they, they know more about this, or maybe they do. I did spend some time trying to research this. How many people from the old cemetery were exhumed and reburied at the new Cemetery, which contradictorily we call the old Nauvoo burial ground, but it's actually the new Nauvoo burial ground in 1842 
or the, we call it the old pioneer cemetery. Sometimes people call it that, right? Apparently, some of the bodies were exhumed, like Edward Partridge, who, who died earlier. He's, his his uh, coffin is dug up, and they take him to this newly opened cemetery, the Pioneer Cemetery, and he's reburied there. When it comes to was everyone exhumed and reburied, what you end up with is a ton of speculation. In fact, you'll find on like Family Search and places like that, they will say Seymour Brunson was buried on the old Nauvoo burial ground in the you know the, the Pioneer Cemetery. But he literally couldn't have been because it didn't exist when he died in 1840. And so he was buried somewhere there on the Durfee Street burial ground. What we don't know is was his body exhumed and moved along with at least some other bodies to this newly created cemetery. Someone might argue, well, of course he was. It's a fair thing to say that he probably was, but there's no record that he was, even though you find it in like family search and ancestry.com and you find all kinds of things that say that that's where he's buried. Go to find a grave. It will say he's buried and the old Nauvoo burial ground. I just can't find any record that says, and then we exhumed the body and we moved it up to the Nauvoo burial ground. Since that did happen with some, and we know that it happened with some, it is possible, maybe likely, I don't know, without a document, I'm more like possible, right? Um, that he was reinterred in that, uh, um, in that new cemetery, which is the old, you know, old Nauvoo burial ground or the pioneer cemetery. At any rate, I think you can pretty definitively say that he isn't in that Nauvoo city cemetery, which actually doesn't even exist until after the saints leave Nauvoo. So where that new headstone is, the one that you're, you're talking of the new shiny one, that one's in the city cemetery, which didn't come into existence until after the saints left. So unless the non-Latter-day Saint residents of Nauvoo dug up Seymour Brunson from wherever he was and moved him to the Nauvoo City Cemetery and then buried him there and then eventually later. Well, I mean, he was a, he was a War of 1812 uh, hero, hero, so perhaps, you know, it's on possible War of 1812. Except we just don't have any record of that happening. So that's the... Well, so luckily for us, John plays fast and loose with the truth. Yeah. So for John, it doesn't matter. He already told us, I don't care what the truth is. This entire podcast is a waste of your time. I will tell people that he's there, even though he literally isn't. Um, But I would say that it is likely, possibly, let's say possibly, it is possible, bordering on likely, that he is, his actual body was buried at the, was reburied at the, the pioneer cemetery there in Nauvoo, outside of Nauvoo today. But honestly, it's actually entirely possible as well that he was not exhumed and moved up to the new cemetery. We, we have pretty scant records of that. And so maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Um, and maybe also, maybe I'm missing a document. Again, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on 
on where people are buried. But even when you look at his uh, descendants' histories of him, even the books that they've written where they talk about it, none of them talk about where he was buried. But nobody was buried anywhere except for on people's personal family plots. Like if your child died, you'd bury them, you know, in your backyard or something like that. Or in that public burial ground there on Durfee Street um, in 1840. In 1840, if you died, there was no pioneer burial ground. That, that cemetery didn't exist yet. So at the very least, we know that wherever Seymour Brunson was initially buried, it wasn't in either of the other two city cemeteries because neither one existed. I'm pretty sure that nobody cares a whole lot about that. Well, I will say that that was taking a question that, that seemed, you know, I don't know, fairly easy or relatively straightforward. And there, you got a lot out of it. I mean, we killed about an hour. So, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, well, and the baptism for the dead is a beautiful point. doctrine. And again, we, we need to spend even more time on that as a doctrine, especially because as you, as we, we noted just by a couple of, you know, internet searches from what Christians want to say about it, that is held up as evidence that Mormons are a cult. The fact that we believe that that's a true doctrine. And it is such a controversial doctrine when it is revealed, as I've stated before, you recognize how controversial it is because all of the other offshoot branches that form their own churches after Joseph is dead, they all abandon baptism for the dead because fundamental to Christianity is that if you don't believe in Jesus when you die, you cannot go to heaven. And Latter-day Saint theology, far from being exclusivistic, as some will argue that we are, Latter-day Saint theology is so all-encompassing that God actually provided a way that literally everyone can be saved. Not just provided in theory, knowing that no one would actually use it, but provided it in practice so that every single person could be saved. And that's, that's a beautiful takeaway, even if I'm not the greatest grave wizard of all time, or even of any time. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.